Let me add my greeting to, to you and welcome you again to the service of worship at Blackmill Church. If you're joining us from far off, we would love to hear from you and uh, to know um, how our offerings in this way are helpful to you. We are glad to have you join us uh, as we are to other visitors who might be joining us more locally. Please let us know if there's any way we can serve you. It would be our joy to uh, serve Christ and to serve you. We continue this morning with our look at the Gospel of Mark with one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite passages, Encounters with Jesus from Mark chapter 2. I think you'll recognize this particular encounter. Beginning with the first verse, listen to God's word. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. And the man got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have never seen anything like this. I was trying to remember the last time that I saw something that made me exclaim in that way. Something like, wow, look at that. Can you remember in your own mind? It feels like we've been so hemmed in and closed down in these past months. Where has been a touchstone of amazement and excitement for you? What would you name? My thoughts go to natural wonders that I have witnessed, not recently, Flying over the Grand Canyon, for example, even from 30,000 feet, it was amazing, the scope of the Grand Canyon. I remember the first time I saw a picture of the Crab Nebula. Amazing. Or witnessing the birth of my children, now many years ago, but as if it were yesterday. It was amazing. We are living in an era, in spite of the pandemic, 
an era of unprecedented access to the fantastical. We can sit in front of a computer and see things that even 20 years ago we might have only heard about if we knew about it at all. From the microscopic world of the cell and the atom and smaller to the images given us by the Hubble telescope and beyond. And yet, I also wonder if, perhaps paradoxically, our capacity for wonder has been diminished. If our capacity for wonder and amazement has been short-circuited by an expectancy brought about by our technological wizardry, our, our drive to figure things out, I wonder if we're not missing things that are actually important. The crowds in Mark 2 were certainly curious. Everywhere Jesus went, they followed. The word was going out ahead of him. He had already been to Capernaum once, and now he was back. And the people were looking for him. He was easy to find. Just follow the crowd. Perhaps the paralyzed man had tried to see Jesus the first time he had come to town. Or perhaps his friends had told him that Jesus was coming back. Regardless, they decided to act. They put their friends who couldn't walk on a litter and carried him into town. The place where they went was packed. It was a home, so the space wasn't that grand. But people were everywhere. The crowd was huge, bodies spilling out of doorways and windows, people outside straining to hear what Jesus was saying inside the house. I wonder which of the four friends had the crazy idea to suggest the radical solution. Houses there and then are different than our homes are. They had flat roofs, beams supported by the exterior walls formed a sort of cross-hatched pattern, and thatch was applied in the open squares, and then a surface coat of mud held the whole thing together. But there were outdoor steps to the rooftop so that people could have access to a breeze or to the air in the hot days and the cool nights. And one of the friends had the idea. If we let him down from above, those people down there will have to get out of the way. So they carted their friend up onto the roof. Put yourself in his position for a moment. What would you be thinking? Was he, was he protesting? Was he saying to his friends, what are you doing? You're going to drop me. Where are you taking me? Was he embarrassed to be the center of attention? Was he grateful? It didn't matter. His friend said, we're going for it. Get used to it. And it didn't take long for the friends working eagerly, fired up by their idea to make a hole. And it wasn't so far from the ceiling to the floor. The hardest thing was making sure that Aaron, who was the smallest of the four guys, don't look for Aaron in your Bible, I'm just suggesting that as a name, that Aaron, the smaller of the four guys, didn't let his rope slip. 
as they lowered their friend. I love this story for so many reasons. But every time I think of it, I am moved to gratitude for friends of mine who have had the courage, the tenacity, the creativity to place me in front of Jesus. Because there are lots of days when I am unable or unwilling to go there on my own. I could give you a long list of friends, names of people who have prayed for me or have spoken to me, who have exercised courage in speaking to me. But let's just call this spiritual friendship. And it is a great gift that I hope you yourself have experienced in your own life. When you read the scripture, especially the New Testament, you will also see this in the Old Testament as well, although less frequently. Pay attention to the names, names that we find most regularly at the ends of the letters of the apostles, especially Paul. Take, for example, Romans 16. It's tempting when we get to that chapter, if we're reading for ideas, big theological ideas, to sort of skim right over the particular names. We do the same thing with the genealogies, right? Okay, this is a this is a list of names, and if we wanted to take the time, we could look back through them. There's all kinds of hidden gems in these lists. But look the next time you come to one of those lists. Instead of looking for your favorite doctrinal emphasis or for a word of personal inspiration, pay attention to the names. Because in reality, the glue of the New Testament is found in the relationships, the friendships that are built between disciples, between Jesus and all of the people who he brought into his his company. And that's because when we are brought to Christ, we are brought into a shared and intimate friendship, the communion between the Father and the Son that exists in the bond of the Holy Spirit. As the Son is sent forth, the Spirit's work is to take us as those who would believe, and he unites us to the Son. And as a result of being united to the Son, we get to share in his friendship, his fellowship with the Father. At the heart of the gospel is restored relationship between us and God and between each other. The church is that earthly community of the spirit in which our Christian lives are built up together and lived out in relation to one another as we together pursue Christ and his work in the world. And this has been a theme that you can find throughout the history of the church. You find it in the the words of Augustine, who speaks about the importance of friends and bringing him to an understanding of who Jesus Christ was. We have the classic meditation by Aylred of Riveau on spiritual friendship. Of course, the classic is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is a catalog of companionship, where we meet friends, spiritual friends, who have the names Faithful and hopeful. And of course, one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, was brought to faith through friendship 
as he walked Addison's Walk in Oxford, accompanied by two, two good friends, Tolkien and Dyson. And I can imagine that if you take the, the moment to pause and reflect, who are the people who have been most important to you as you have gotten to know Jesus Christ and then sought to be faithful to him? The names will come readily to mind. And how much I have learned from being one among you in this congregation. So many brothers and sisters in the faith have offered their hands and their hearts to me along the way. The list is long and my indebtedness is great. Our four friends in Mark chapter two help us to see how thin our typical definition of friendship is. When we think of friendship, we think of guys sharing snacks around a football game maybe, or women talking about the kids at the park. But we have to push deeper. Here in Mark 2, our four friends have been talking about Jesus and somehow this plan is hatched. We have to get our friend to him. They were compelled. They were willing to endure ridicule and public mocking because it was so important to get their obviously needy friend in front of Jesus. They exemplify a willingness to explore together what it means to follow Christ, to be faithful to him, to name and to use the gifts that he has given us to strengthen one another, the church, and our mission in the world. How awkward that can feel, I know. To talk about Jesus with friends. Most of us grew up thinking we don't talk about religion and politics among the more familiar friends of our lives. But we need friends to put us in front of Jesus, even when we are afraid or ashamed or embarrassed. Who are those friends for you? And perhaps more importantly, ask yourself, how might the Lord make you to be one of those kinds of friend? But what happened when they lowered their friend to the ground? I can imagine being one of those people in the house looking up as they hear a noise from above. I can imagine the dirt that began to kind of crumble, the dust cloud filling the air, people coughing as thatch fell into the crowd, and then seeing a patch of light where there was not supposed to be. Heads turned upward, and all they can see is something being lowered down, now blocking that patch of light. They don't know what's happening. All they see is that this, this, this thing that looks like a cot is being lowered, and as they as it gets lower and lower, it doesn't take them long to realize that there's a man on this litter. And so they're scrambling as people push against one another to create space for this man to be lowered to the ground. The man is then recognized. And as people then look up, they, they are surprised to see four faces pop over the opening and stare down. And I'm guessing that a couple of them have big smiles on their faces. They're grinning. 
But what happens next? Jesus surprises everyone when he says, son, your sin is forgiven. Why the surprise? It's because only God can forgive, not the chief priest. He could declare God's forgiveness on the day of atonement, but he would be very clear that he is not the one who is doing the forgiving. Not even the long expected Messiah would forgive sins according to the common expectation. He would usher in a new kingdom. He might be expected to exercise demons. His presence might exert a political impact. He might be judging the unrighteous. But to forgive sins, no. That was not in the imagination of what Messiah would do because only God can forgive, because God is the one who is most offended by any sin. So who is this guy who dares to forgive sin? Jesus declares that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In my mind's eye, he is looking at the teachers of the law as he says this. But now he turns to address the man face to face, eye to eye. He looks down on him as he lies there, perhaps befuddled himself, feeling the awkwardness of the moment. And he hears words come from Jesus, a command, a simple command. Get up. Now, this is the first time that we encounter this odd phrase in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man. Just a word about that phrase. It doesn't just mean, it doesn't mean human, like the opposite of the Son of God, the Son of Man, uh, deity, human being. That's not what it means. Across the scripture, this term is used to refer to one who is coming in judgment, one who has authority to forgive, and one who suffers for the sake of those he came to rescue. Jesus here in Mark 2 is applying it to himself as if to say, I am the son of man of whom you used to read in your scriptures. The moment of judgment and rescue has come in me. Do you see what's happening here? Not content to be a healer of bodies, as dramatic as that might seem. He wants us to understand that this healing of this man's broken body is part of a much larger agenda. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Here, right now on the earth, I'm going to do the extraordinary thing and I'm going to get this man healed. Here in the midst of this crowd, in normal clothing, on a hot day, here in the midst of the chaos and brokenness and corruption of the world, stands the Messiah, the Savior. And he is so much more than their categories have allowed. God himself here in this cramped living room, declaring that 
He has arrived. The rescue operation that has been so long in the planning stages has begun. No wonder they said, we have never seen anything like this before. No kidding. I wonder if we see it as familiar as we might be with the words of Jesus and the pages of scripture. Had we been in that room, we would have marveled at that man as he stood up wobbling from his mat. And maybe that's all we would have talked about. But listen, unless Jesus forgives, we are just walking dead men and women. Those four friends brought their friend to Jesus. They wanted him to walk, but Jesus wanted him to live. So here are these four friends, so compelled by the need of their friend and so hopeful of what Jesus might offer, they inadvertently give us an early hint as they open that hole in the ceiling, as they lower their friend down on the litter, They are giving us a first taste of Jesus himself going down into the grave, but then to emerge, to get up, to rise. Jesus wants us to live. So the man left walking, but he received so much more than that. He left reconciled to God, to be forgiven, to be reconciled. It's everything. The weight of guilt and shame lifted, our corruption cured. It's everything. Does it seem that way to you? Does forgiveness matter? to have the God of the universe look on you and to say, I forgive you? Does being reconciled to God matter in this day and time? In a culture where all the talk is about rights, I wonder where is the offer of forgiveness and of grace? The reality is, friends, that all of us are spiritual paralytics. None of us can heal ourselves. We may be fortunate to have some spiritual friends who can put us in front of Jesus, who can help us to see our true need, but only he can speak the word that heals. The very good news that I have for you this morning is that he has spoken that word. And for those who have ears to hear, that's marvelous. The mercy of God, more marvelous than the Grand Canyon from 30,000 feet, more marvelous than the Crab Nebula, more marvelous than the emergence of new life into this world. The gift that has been given by Jesus Christ, that is saying something. We've never 
seen anything like this before. Amen.